Spread the fire, welcome back to SMWX. And today I have a treat for you. I have the one and only Mbali Nduli, who as you all should know by now is running to be leader of the Democratic Alliance, the DA, South Africa's second biggest political party. And not only if she wins, will she be leader of the DA, but she'll be leader of the official opposition in our country. So it's a great honor and I'm really excited that she's taken some time out of a very busy schedule on the eve of her party's elective federal Congress to join SMWX. Mbali, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I've been wondering when I was going to be invited, so I'm very excited to be here. Um, and I'm looking forward to what I know is going to be a very interesting conversation. It couldn't have come at a better time. And to kick things off, um, I have an important question, which is, uh, which of the nine Star Wars films is your favorite? Return of the Jedi. You know what? That's my favorite too. It has to be. I mean, look, you wow. can talk about a lot of them, but that was, uh, I, I think, a masterpiece of, of storytelling. And I mean, I watched it as a kid and it still sticks with me today. So that's definitely, I think, my favorite. Although, like, unlike most people, I didn't hate um, the newer ones as much as most people did. I just hated mm. the second one. Rian Johnson. I thought we were going to disagree, but then I, yeah, like the, the first and the third were okay, but as for this Rise of Skywalker business, um, or That's The Last good. Jedi rather, um, yeah, I'm sorry, like Luke, yeah. Luke was supposed to be like this incredible character and he comes back as this drunk uncle. But also they just had no character development for anyone. I mean, I love John Boyega. I really thought that storyline was gonna go Then they had nothing to do with them. Then there was, um, you know, the, um, is her name Rosie Tran? I forget her her, her name, her real mm, name, because I really mm. remember people's character names. But yeah, it ended up being too many loose ends that had to mm. sort of be tied up in the last one, which didn't, didn't give us the real character development. And mm. I was hoping that you know Ray and Kylo were gonna like try to kill each other, then they could, which okay. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> okay. Well, we yeah. Have a, the thing is, most people like Empire, and for some reason, I think it's just nostalgia. I like a nice ending, so that's why I like Jedi. I know it's not technically better, but, you know, the, the elective con uh, Congress is coming up, um, and you're running to be leader of a major political party in South Africa. Um, why are you not John? Look, without speaking too much about John, because I think he can sell himself, I think that we need a different type of politician in this country. I think we need a new way of doing politics. I know I'm certainly tired of the status quo. I'm tired of the way that we have seen politics and the discourse happening. And I think I bring a fresh perspective. I also think that I'm non-establishment enough that even within the DA, I'm going to be able to do things differently. But certainly, I think in the political context of our country, um, you know, if I, be, if I win and I go up against Sula Ramaphosa, that's going to be something that I get, think gets South Africans excited again. And I think with all of us feeling so powerless and helpless to being able to do anything about the current political system that we find ourselves in, it might be a really good idea to have someone who would at least reinvigorate people's imaginations of what is still possible. 
and to have a 32 year old, uh, you know, black female in this country win that kind of position, if for nothing else, people will just watch either out of sheer curiosity or to see me fail. And hopefully when I don't, they'll be emboldened and encouraged themselves to take part of the political system. So, I mean, that's just what I feel the win would do for me. But in terms of what I think I can bring to the DA, I think that I have a better track record of being able to reach different communities. I've worked in rural areas, informal settlements, townships, in Makaya, places where the DA never was before that I've been able to show you can actually have a real base and support system uh, if you actually work and show people that you're serious about that. And I think that that's all politics is. You have to be in communities, you have to get them to trust you by actually doing your job. And then you've got to take them with you um, into believing that you could do even more if you were given the power. And I don't know if every single person who's running in this race is able to reach across to so many different communities. Also speaking as someone in my age group like yourself, who has also had the advantage and the privilege of also having the ability to interweave themselves in very multiracial, um, I suppose, spaces in South Africa. So we can speak to people who have the lived realities of, you know, people like my grandmother, people like my cousins and aunts who still live in poverty in some regard. And mm -hmm. we've also been to, you know, multiracial schools and can navigate that kind of world, which you have to in South Africa because of the complexity of uh, our, our political makeup and just our socioeconomic makeup. And I think you're gonna want someone who can talk to all of those people, make them feel included and make them feel a part of something going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess as, you know, as you run for this position, you're running not only to be the leader of a party, but also to occupy a really important place in South African politics writ large. So let's, let's come on to each of those two things. I want to look at the party first. And it's funny that you bring up the, the multiracial background that you come from as, as an important part of who you are, because I want to read you something that um, your competitor, uh, John Steenhuizen, said, um, I know it's hard for you, apparently close to the election, you can't really reference them. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I'll just read it and then we'll see where we go from there. He said, adopting this resolution will position us as the only political party, this by the way is in a letter to members recently a few weeks ago, the only political party in the country that unequivocally rejects the dangerous ideology of multiracialism. So <clears throat> I think that in South Africa, given our past and our history, we all like to believe that we're going to get to a place where non-racialism is something that we can, you know, get to eventually. I think it's unrealistic for any political leader and dangerous to pretend that people aren't living in the realities that they find themselves in predominantly because of their race, given our history in this country. And so I can't shy away from the fact that I understand that people that are standing for long hours in queues at clinics, people whose children aren't getting quality education, people whose children are dying in pit routines, are there because obviously their parents and their grandparents weren't given opportunities to do any better because of the color of their skin. I'm not saying that it should be something that we judge everyone on, certainly in terms of their character now or ever, but if you want to redress the systemic inequality that we see, we have to realize that a lot of people are in that situation because of how they skin. And that doesn't make you a racist. It doesn't make you somebody that is dangerous in terms of ideology. It makes you realistic and a politician who will be able to go and speak to people 
understanding where they are. So myself and John might uh, disagree, I think, on how we get there, but I think everyone wants an unracial future. So I don't reject that as an ideal, but I'm not about to go and tell Ukoko a story at all that, you know, I'm here first and foremost to tell you that the DA only believes in non-racialism and that we don't see race. And now mm. we'll tell you about all our policies. I just don't think as somebody who's worked on the ground, that's the way to go about it. I don't think it's ever wise to tell people who they are or what their realities are in any case. I think you meet them where they are, not where you'd like them to be. And so for me, it's going to be important that you can always be aspirational in the kind of stuff that you say, but you have to have realistic ways of trying to get people to that non-racial future. Otherwise, you're just kind of telling people what you think should happen, but you're not telling them how you get out of it. So even if you take it away from things like um, BE, which has become a big uh, focus point to this, when I speak about racial inequality, I'm also speaking about spatial planning and the people effectively still live in the ghettos that apartheid left. We should be a party if we are serious about governing in this country and serious about talking about the values of making sure that everyone has an opportunity, speaking how we would deal with that particular kind of problem. How do you get businesses to go into these places? How do you create them to be economic zones so that people are able to be uplifted in those communities and make them as good as suburbia? Because if you look at suburbia and you look at townships and informal settlements, what is the glaring characteristic of the kind of people that live in them. And we shouldn't be afraid to talk about that. I, I, I really don't understand why a politician in today's age would find that something difficult to acknowledge if you want to speak people realistically. Well, so I had John um, on the channel. I've, I've also spoken to Helen and, and Musi as well. So if you're watching, go and check out those interviews because they're interesting. And it was before your policy conference. And I put something to him which he said, well, look, some of these things still need to be worked out, right? I said to him, look, if you move, as you now seem to have, um, towards this policy of, quote, means-based redress, and you take away the question of race as a marker for disadvantage, what happens if there's a white person who gambles away their income and a black person who's lived with the structural devastating consequences of apartheid, and they both have the same income. You're telling me it's fair to have a policy that treats them equally in an application or for a job or for some important zero-sum resource? Um, because the problem is there's no policy that perfectly accounts for injustice, but you can have injustices either way. And it seems like the DA is saying this means-tested approach eradicates all injustice. It seems to me that they're incredibly arbitrary and counterintuitive results that flow from this, this new approach. Um, what do you say to that? So, I think that the means test can only go so far, if I'm being very honest. So, for example, if it's on an application system, purely on something like maybe NISFIS, you can sort of have a point in time where universities all ask certain applicants, you know, how much money does your parents make? And then you can have the means test and apply there. But how do you do a means test for a job? How do you do a means test for how you eradicate the kind of special planning I was just talking about? And this is not to say that I disagree with it on some level. I think it can happen for some things like we've seen happening, but it can't be the be all and end all of how you try to redress the system that we have and that's what 
I think is where I differ um, me from the person I'm running against. And I think that you have to have a far more holistic way of looking at it um, and, and really trying to get to how you would really fundamentally address these issues. And so, mm -hmm. excuse me, I don't think that, I mean, and means tests also just by the way are incredibly expensive and you'd have to do them every few years because every mm -hmm. few years you're getting new people that are going to have to now be looked at. What I think one of the things that we really should be looking at is for 18 to 25 year olds, a form of basic income. You've seen in many parts of the world that this is actually one of the things that actually helps raise people out of poverty. It gives them a safety net of being able to fail, which means that they're able to innovate, which means that they're able to start small businesses, or they could use it to be able to actually further their own ability to get skills. If, you know, in the country, ideally, we're also trying to bring our mm. team at colleges up. But what you want to do is you want to give people a way to empower themselves and not make everything about the state in terms of handing out things or trying to have arbitrary ways of trying to now say, well, maybe, you know, your mom is a policeman, your, your, your dad is a teacher and you have just enough money that you don't fall into this category and so that there's no way to help you. When we know even that income despite what it says in the bank statements, is probably going to so many other different people if you understand the lived realities of South Africans. So I, I don't think that you can use a means test as a catch for everything. And this is one of the reasons that I said to my party, I really thought that we needed to take this to our federal Congress so that we mm. could thread these ideas out more. Because I don't want to sit here and be asked by anyone, black or white or Indian, so what does the VA mean when it says a means test? What mm. is that going to look like and not be able to answer you? At this point, I can't because we haven't um, fully articulated that. As somebody who has read up on means tests and understands it, I don't think it's going to address systemically the issues that we see um, yeah. currently. And so I think a stakeholder economy, I think finding ways to incentivize businesses to go into communities where they've never been incentivized to go into before. I think trying to obviously give people uh, a means of income which they can actually use and not be this nanny state also that assumes that everyone's going to blow their money away because that isn't actually borne out by any of the evidence. Mm -hmm. Give the most productive years of someone's life back to them. Unlike now in South Africa where you either have to have a baby or be over 55 or disabled to be able to get any kind of form of assistance from the mm -hmm. government. That to me is moving us towards actually be addressing inequalities that we have obviously with other big structural reforms that we can take, but I don't think that wishing away our racist past and the racial inequality is going to do anything. And I also think sometimes we fall into the idea of thinking that it's because we're trying to make sure that white people don't feel uncomfortable. I don't think that white people would feel uncomfortable if we could prove that there were ways that we could get everyone going forward together. I think everyone wants that in our country. And I think sometimes we fall into the trap of just because some people scapegoat white people and some people make white people feel uncomfortable, which is wrong, that automatically white people don't understand that actually this country needs to have major redress in order for everyone to go forward together. Mm -hmm. And that's what you need from a leader. You need someone who's going to be able to speak to those different people and say, I understand where all of you are, and this is what we've got to do to make sure that everyone's at least having a fair opportunity to be able to live their lives, to have some form of self-actualization, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think to, to some extent, the DA in its recent policy proposals, which as you say, will be going to the elective federal Congress. Um, no, but, they're oh, they're not? No. Oh, okay. Well, 
I thought they were, but that just I did ask under underscores the point. Yes, yes, I saw, okay. So hold on a second. Whoa. How did the decision to not put them to the 2000 delegates at the, at the Congress happen? Like what was the reasoning there? So I wrote to the federal chairperson, Helen Zilla, and I asked her to put the policy outcome to the federal Congress, which is a body of 2000 people, as opposed to the 200 that took the decision. And not because I was trying to be antagonistic, but because I think it's important to take your whole party with you, to make sure that everyone understands what you're trying to say and to give everyone an opportunity again to be able to thrash out some of the minutiae of these kinds of things. Uh, the legal opinion that she sought and got said that it was perfectly acceptable for it to be um, done at a federal council level, which is fine when you have you know, policies that have to be done when it's very far from Congress. But for a Congress that was literally a month later, I really felt in the spirit of renewal for the DA and the spirit of taking everyone together, we should have put these policies to the party, to be quite frank. Um, but that was not the legal opinion that Helen was able to get. And so uh, we will get a report on the resolutions, but we will not be able to deliberate on them. Okay, so, so non-racialism, quote unquote, it is. And, and then and to circle back to this question of the means test, it does seem to me that there is something of a contradiction between saying on the one hand, as I've heard um, some party leaders say, um, this behemoth state of ours is um, you know, incapable. And then on the other, we're going to now institute a policy which requires far more understanding of people's incomes, their backgrounds. Uh, a huge bureaucratic process would have to go into navigating millions of opportunities in South Africa by means testing. Presumably someone actually has to do that, has to monitor that, has to implement that and make sure people aren't misrepresenting. So I also struggle to see how, on the one hand, we've got this incapable state that can't do anything, but on the other hand, we're going to have the state that's able to know the income of everyone and that they're representing their means um, appropriately. Well, I suppose the idea is that we will be in charge of the states and we'll run it more efficiently, I would assume. For me, the more interesting question is, and, and let's put maybe race and racial inequality aside because everyone um, touched about that. For me, the, the, the very interesting one was around gender mm. um, and making sure that we don't have um, gender. And for me, I really think that this goes against a lot of research that says, in particular, when you're able to empower, well, first of all, before we get to that, the way that my yeah. generation, you and me, understand gender is very different to what gender was 20, 30 years ago, which I think is what this policy is speaking about. The 20, sure. 30 years ago, people were speaking about gender as the biological sex that you present as. As you and I will know, gender is a very different self-identifying form now to a large part in the way that we understand it sociologically. But anyway, let's take for the purposes of this discussion that gender is still just about you know, the sex that you uh, present as um, in society. There are so many studies that say that the reason that gender-based violence, the reason that communities aren't able to have holistic family structures or have people being able to break out of the cycle of poverty is because women in the families are not empowered to be able to have money. Because when a mom or a gogo or an aunt or somebody who's the matriarch figure in a 
in a family has money, they are able to, you know, buy food, make sure the kids are taken care of. And I'm using this in general terms. But mm. basically, there's a way for people to have food on the table and to have at least their basic needs dealt with, which means that people aren't having to stay in relationships with, you know, uh, with people for financial reasons, or that children are going, you know, starving and therefore have childhood malnutrition or childhood stunting. So all these things have to make you realize that because women have systemically, systemically been left out of employment, job opportunities, that you would want them, if you want any kind of society to be able to move forward, particularly in one like ours, to see that they've been left out of these opportunities because they're women, and then to redress that. Mm. The same with the community, the same with people who are you know, disabled. And once you say that you don't see all these different things, so what does that society look like if you're not trying to make mm. sure that everyone's on same equal playing field and I ask this not to be antagonistic I, I genuinely think it's a question that even as South Africans we have to grapple with if we're not making sure that we are allowing women queer people who've never been given those opportunities disabled people who still are very fundamentally unseen in our society to have the same level of opportunities are you really building a fair society or are you building a society that just perpetuates the fact that you know straight sort of semi-privileged people are going to continue to always be at the top and I say this as somebody who although is a black female has a lot of privilege in terms of being a straight black female for example mm-hmm. so. and I guess the danger is that the society that emerges is a society that looks like the DA's top leadership um, where you know I look at who's running for the positions in this party and this is something I heard my mom say recently which I thought was really apt. She said that this idea of meritocracy is actually meritocracy because meritocracy often comes to mean people who look like me are the ones deserving of merit. And I'm afraid there does seem to be quite a bit of meritocracy going on in the DA's leadership. They always kind of present the leadership in a weird way and the spokespeople are, but when you look at the people who control the money, the person who controls the day-to-day running of the party and potentially the party leader, which I would say are three very important positions. They could be all white by the end of this Congress. And then you start to say like, are we ignoring race because we really believe in this non-racialism or are we ignoring race because we want to ignore a problem that's in our party and sweep it under the carpet? So I think that many people in our party generally want to work for the cause of trying to make South Africa better. I think like any organization, there are power grabs and you know, factions that emerge uh, that believe that things should ha- happen and go a certain way. And I suppose when you're in politics, you hope that people have the spine and the backbone to be able to rise up to the occasion if they see something is wrong. Mm. But that also can't ignore many of what I will say are potentially some of the hurdles uh, to leadership. So just, for example, in my leadership race, I've had to raise a lot of money. I've had to put in a lot of my money just to be able to compete on a level that doesn't make me seem like somebody who's completely ridiculous for trying to do this. Mm. And so Mm. do you imagine that the average person who has a family, children, 
whatever that they need to be paying for has the money to even try and run for an election like that. And it's something that in the next cycle I'm going to put across as something that we need to change in our rules. Mm. That either the party gives people the same amount of money to campaign on, or there's a cap or, or, or something to that effect, because otherwise you're just never going to, like we see in our general politics and society, see an emergence of people who may have good ideas, who may have the best intentions to be able to rise to those levels because it is just so cumbersome financially. And you kind of have to have, um, you know, your own money or the backing of people with seriously pockets. And this is just for an internal election mm. of like mm. 2,000 people. The bigger yeah. the DA gets, the more intense that's going to be. And so it, I think for me, again, it is the, um, the cycle again of the socioeconomic status of where you've been put in your, in your life by the circumstances of your birth, quite frankly. Um, but I think the idea of meritocracy is a very subjective one, not just in the DA, but anywhere. And usually what it just means is that you can assimilate to the culture of what is deemed the right thing. Um, whether that's in the workplace, whether that's in some fancy corporate, people look at so many things. You can have your CV, you can have your academic record, but then they kind of have these almost unconscious biases. Like, does this person seem like they have integrity? Will they get to work on time? Are they dressed mm. for the, you know, can they speak about, I don't know, rugby or whatever around the cooler mm. um, at lunchtime? All of those things that people don't think come into their minds, but do. And so the idea of meritocracy and poli politics in particular, I think is a very subjective thing. And one that I've never understood because show me what that politician looks like. I would like to see it. Mm. Mm. Okay, so I've grilled you about the DA. Uh, quite a lot. So let me let me move um, let me move from the DA because the thing is that should you win this election, you will have your hands full trying to you know reform the party or at least espouse your vision within the within the party. But you will also have a really important role to play in South African politics as you know leader of South Africa's official opposition party. So let's let's look at the broader political landscape now. And the president recently, you know, presented this so-called economic reconstruction plan. Do you think that you have something economically to offer that would be different and better to the kind of plans? Um, and I hesitate to call them those uh, that President Ramaphosa is putting across. So first of all, and I mean, I'll be very honest, I think he has the benefits of some of the top minds in the country, hopefully helping him. And this is one of the things that I've said, you know, as a Democratic Alliance that I'm going to make sure. And I had a very great conversation the other day to just showcase it with uh, Dr. Sitembide Mbete and Kopia George, where I invited experts. I put what I think are some of the sort of structural reforms that we need to see, my stakeholder economy that I've spoken about at length, and, and how you get money going into the pockets of South Africans in that sense. I spoke about, like I said, the basic income for young people and seed funding in particular, and upskilling people in TVET colleges and a number of different things. But when it comes to the fiscus, 
or when it comes to the pure economics of what it's going to take for us to not have so much debt that we're servicing, which actually is going to be our problem season in the future if you're looking at you know, the medium-term sort of expenditure framework that we've been presented with, it is a very difficult thing, I think, to be able to just thumbsack without the experts being able to tell you. So I could tell you theoretically what I think we should do um, and hope that it would work, but I don't know um, that there's enough, I think, in terms of even myself being able to put something together just really needed to go through it. I don't think that Cyril said anything that was different from what we've heard for a long time. He kind of said the same kind of policy framework that we've had, big structural reform, investments, tourism, which is not a sector that's going to be revived anytime soon, to be quite frank, um, but no plans on what to actually do. So as the DA leader, what I've said we need to focus on immediately is the upskilling of the millions of young people that have absolutely nothing that they are able to do right now that has to be the focus. And with that means that we are bringing in people from overseas to take care of that for us and to privatize those institutions and to make sure that people are able to access that. If it means that we're also helping with seeding and funding and mentorships of you know, small businesses so that they can fail if they need to fail, but that they're at least innovating on trying to do something. If that means that we are giving a basic income grant, well, let me not say grant because I don't like that word because it makes people feel like it's a handout and you know, something that they shouldn't be able to access the state. There are so many different things that we're going to have to do to try and get our economy revived again. But I also disagree with those austerity measures that we've been taking in a large respect, I think, because even though we don't always have the money to be spending, now is not the time, I think, as a government, that that's the particular role that Tito, I suppose, should be taking. Um, because all it means is that we are trying to focus on consumption-led growth. And when we do that as Africa, most of that money actually goes overseas instead of being able to be used here. But even sectors like agriculture, which are the only ones that have been able to survive COVID without shedding jobs, are not the kinds of things that we are incentivizing the government to say, here is manual labor work that people can do, that we can regulate to make fair and have fair practices and give people jobs that would put us in the position of being one of the best in the world. We had 128,000 commercial farmers we're down to 38,000 in four years. Most of them have gone to Zambia. We have the expertise. We should be bringing young people into the sector because it's been proven, even just as recently as three weeks ago by the World Economic Forum, that South Africa would be able to do this. The care industry is something else that people have been talking about as us being able to really be able because of the weather that we have and the kind of climate and the kind of you know, ability for foreigners to live here, that we could be incentivizing and saying, come to South Africa, come retire here or, you know, upskill three million people to be able to take care of you. You've got to really think out of the box of what we can do. The cannabis industry, hemp industry, I know people get very conservative about that. But again, there's a, a, a conference that just happened in Colorado that said that Mbumalanga and the Eastern, and, and, and KZ, Eastern Cape and KZN are some of the best places in the world to grow hemp that is quality grade that can be used for everything from building materials, which we could use, to manufacturing medicinal use of it that you know obviously can be used all over the world. So we have all these amazing things that we could be doing, but we're still talking about 19th century jobs sometimes in South Africa. And we're moving so far behind the rest of the world, especially given the fact that so many jobs are gonna be automated now, and that even in universities, they're gonna to have to change their curriculums, that we're falling more and more behind. And I just really think that it needs 
a leader that at least has the vision of wanting to innovate. And so I can't give every single thing that I would do, but what I do know that more than certainly our president, I want to be looking to a different degree of what young people in particular could do, but even people that just are able um, could start being able to do. And once you have that, you'll take care of things like racism in any case, because if I have my nieces where and I'm able to, you know, take my girlfriend out for a date or be able to buy myself an apartment, whether you like me because I'm black or not, or white or whatever, becomes very, you know, quickly irrelevant in terms of the systemic power you have over me. It just becomes a prejudice or offense that you have. And I think that a lot of those problems could be taken care of if we could just give people the dignity of having real jobs that they could use. Sure, and to move from the, from the economic setting to just the wider political setting. I guess a lot of people are disgruntled with the ANC um, for, for very good reason when you look at its record, never mind the economic record, just the record on corruption and governance. And so I think for a lot of people also, particularly our age, the question is, okay, I want to do something different, but now it's a question of which opposition party do I want to go for? Um, and, you know, how would you position the DA such that it would be preferable to the EFF, would be preferable to other opposition parties that, um, you know, maybe haven't garnered the, the number of votes that the EFF has in the last two elections, but where would you see the DA being different to other opposition parties if people are already tired of the ANC? If I become the leader, I've said very clearly that what I want to do is make the DA the kind of party where everyone's going to feel like they belong. So I wouldn't, again, lead with this purely classical liberal sort of ideology as the centerpiece of how you can feel that you can identify with the democratic alliance. What's going to be important is to really put out the ideas of empowerment, the ideas of justice, and the idea of everybody having the DAA be able to fight for them in their corners and where they are. And that takes understanding where they are. So those would be what I would premise it on. But then I'd also throw a challenge, particularly to people our age, to say, I can't also be the only one doing it here. Anything that you want to change, as we've seen throughout history, is going to need a lot of us to be able to get in behind it and pushing and making sure that it becomes the thing that we want it to become. Nothing just starts off being great or good. And I would really try to incentivize people to join. And I want people who are academics, people who are experts in their fields, people who are passionate about whatever, the media industry, to feel that they can come to the Democratic Alliance, have a voice and be able to push and champion those things. Because the more that we are able to do, the more people we're trying to get on board to be able to help us to be able to push those agendas is going to look better for the party. And I don't mean to just help us by, you know, giving them by their phone call and saying, I'd like you to please support this bill. I mean, doing the work of it too, because people also assume that politicians just, you know, kind of get things. A lot of us are actually not that bright. We might be great <laughs> on the field, or we might be, and I, I mean, I said that as no insults to myself or my colleagues, but there are so many things that we just might not know about that are very important to mm. the country. Mm. And the importance is all these various bodies should be lobbying political parties. They should be on our axes about these things. So if your passion is that we should have a greater bill for, you know, actors in this country to not be exploited as we see every few weeks on 
Twitter, then come and say, how would that happen? What would that look like? Because you're assuming that nobody knows what's happening in your industry. I don't know what's mm. happening in your industry. I care empathetically about people not being exploited, but if you're not gonna come and say to me, I'm an actor, these are the hours we work, this is the thing, you don't have any regulatory body, then how would you expect that I would just know about that? Um, and I think that South Africans have gotten into a lull of thinking that the political um, discourse is just about voting, or just about you know being angry and disgruntled. You should take your power back and you should be sitting on politicians and sitting on political parties to do what you want them to do. And you should infiltrate them as much as possible to be able to get to those means. Otherwise, you're just kind of hoping that a random grouping of people who came together for one or other reason is going to care about, what, the climate or, I don't know, whatever it is that you care about. Um, and so the South African public also needs to be galvanized. But I'll be the leader that makes them feel that at least that they'll have that space. Because I feel right now that the African public that doesn't belong to the local party or doesn't have a political home doesn't even know where to start. And I think any party, be it the DA or anyone, who can give them the idea of how they would have that platform would already be leaps and heads bound um, ahead of everyone else. So I wanted to also ask you, you know, as someone who's so relatively young in comparison to so many of the politicians who occupy positions of power in our country right now, just like on a personal level, what's it been like running for the leadership of, of one of our country's biggest parties? Um, you know, I think that there are people watching who, who care about politics who maybe want to get involved, but they've never taken the leap. What kind of things have you learned, like putting yourself out there to this extent and, and just like going for it? It's been brutal. Hmm. It's um, it has been really brutal in in some respects. I think you open yourself up and you make yourself vulnerable, and you kind of tell people who you are and what you believe because you'd like them to believe that you know what you're saying is what you authentically will do, and um, if you're not the truth. But hmm. wow, people can be really cruel out there. And I mean, a big part of being in politics is that you should have a thin, thick skin. Um, but there are some things that definitely hurt a, a lot of the time. And if anyone mm -hmm. just goes through my general Twitter feed, um, there's a lot of nice stuff that people say, but there's a lot of people that sort of tell you, you know, one, either you're a coconut or they don't feel sorry for you or, you know, why are you in the DA or why are you trying to do this or give up? I think I get on a daily basis people telling me to withdraw from the race which is very discouraging, I think, and it's very demoralizing because then it obviously means that some of those people are just, they're not seeing what you're doing or what you're trying to do. Mm. Um, but at the same time, you, you can't be in this kind of thing for the validation of people. You either believe what you believe and you want to make it work and you're gonna do whatever you can, or you are gonna feel constantly at odds with yourself and with the decisions you make. So I would encourage people if they wanna come into the political space in particular, whatever reason that they have that to be their guiding and north point because if you go away from that then you start being able to have a lot of infiltration of different voices that don't always know you don't always get what you're trying to say um that will be negative so it's been brutal in that sense it's been exhausting i mean it was supposed to be a three-month race and it's now been a nine-month race i've had covid mm. in between mm. um i've been raising a toddler uh i've been using a lot of my own money so there's also just been like 
all of that that's been happening. But I think mm. very gratifying and satisfying. I mean, we're five, no, we're like five minutes away from the race now, basically. Mm. Um, and, you know, many people didn't think I'd get to the end. Many people didn't even think I'd have two votes um, against, you know, an incumbent. But I think what the race has shown is that anything is possible, quite frankly. Um, and that you should stick to your guns when you believe in something. And I've really believed in the message that I've been putting out there. I've believed that the Democratic Alliance can be a party that is kind and strong and fair, that we could show South Africans a new way of how we could do politics. We could completely change the space if you had the kind of leader that was willing to do that. And win or lose, I hope at least it encourages other people who watch the race now or in a few years from now or read about it to do the same things where they are. So. You know, as a personal uh, sort of thing, I suppose um, it's been very satisfying to get to the end. Um, there were many days, almost every day, where I was like, ugh, should be over it. You know, let me mm. go join the corporates of the world or something and <laughs> do that. But I I'm glad I did it. Um, mm. Mm. I hope that you know, other people will do it too. Yeah. Also, now yeah. maybe we're too much scary for people, you know? If a 32-year-old yeah. can do it on your own dime, yeah, everyone should be like throwing their hats in it. And the more contestation we have, the better. The stronger our democracy gets, the more sharp we want leaders, all of that. And that can only be good for us. So, you know, with, with this big election coming up, you know, in a matter of days, um, I want to put a scenario to you. So scenario number one is you shock the world and you win. <laughs> scenario number two is that you know the incumbent who's got various endorsements and you know the power of incumbency wins um what do you think you feel in either of those moments since if i'm honest with you i don't think i can do either of those things that make me feel like i need like i just said like so much has happened that i feel so so proud of myself and my team um, that it, there's no possible way to lose. If I get 500 votes, that's already like what? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Oh, man, that's just left me now. A quarter. Yeah. Like it's a quarter, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Which means 25% of the DA actually thought I had something to say. If I get more mm -hmm. than that, even better. But I I don't feel like I can lose, and I feel really great about what we've done. And I think we've run a great campaign. We've actually campaigned, um, and we've done a lot. We've gone around the country. We've done mm. town halls and COVID, um, and we've had to adapt in a Congress environment that nobody ever has had to. I wish very much that we had had a proper sort of elective conference sort of um, period, because I would have loved to have gone out to meet more delegates more intimately, so they could also know me. I think mm. I'm more convincing than I am online. Um, so the ones that I could meet, I've met. Unfortunately for others, I've had to do it online. But either way, I'm feeling great about the outcome. Um, and like you say, I'm young. There's no possible loss of this. If anything, it will just be a great, really great um, learning curve for me on if I do do it next time, whether it's here, whether it's in another entity. Um, and I don't mean another political party. I mean, whatever South African mm. politics mm. has to throw at us, then it's a lot of experience. And this is over and above the 14 years of experience that I already have in the ground. So 
I'm, I'm really happy with what my t- myself and my team have been able to do. Yeah. Well, look, it's been, it's been great to speak to you at I this really important time. Sorry? I think if I win, obviously I'll be really excited. Like, I don't <laughs> yeah, then, team. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, hey, look, I wouldn't put it past you. Um, so, yeah, look, I just wanted to say thanks a lot uh, for coming on SMWX as well, uh, especially at this like crucial time. I know that uh, your time is really at a premium right now, and it's been great to watch the things that you've been doing and all the best for the election. And um, I think you're the first in our generation to really go for it and uh, in that way have in some ways led the way. So shout out to you for that. Thank you. I hope to see you soon coming after me. Well, well you know, uh, I'm, I'm always here to advise. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. Thanks, Mbali. Ayeye.